tonight. Paul is discussing the division and the causes of the division that, that is plaguing the church at Corinth. And, and you know what? The church at Corinth is, is really not a lot different than a lot of churches. There are different problems in different places. A lot of times preachers get the, get the uh, reputation for moving from place to place and they do that, it seems, because, well, this place has a problem here and, and it's not solved and so <clears throat> they'll cho- uh, choose to move and they'll go to this place and, and, and you know what? Usually it's the same problems with different faces. That, that's basically the way it works. Well, it's been that way. It shouldn't be that way, but it's been that way ever since the first century and Paul is dealing with that. As he discusses the division in chapter number 1, one of the things that he deals with there in verses 10 through 17 is that they had been baptized not into some other person, but into Christ. And, and he wants them to remember that. They should be in Christ and remember that they're not belonging to another person. And he talks about in chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, that uh, the human wisdom with which... Uh, men sometimes try to live is at odds with God's wisdom and it's not good to try to do things or work things on our own without considering God and and the fact that he has indeed planned things and knows much better than even we because not only can he see what's happening here but he can see all the way to the end and and beyond and so the human wisdom that sometimes people try to use that's one of the things that contributed to the to the division at Corinth now you go on into chapter 2 and you see that that Paul makes it clear that he was preaching by the inspiration of God, that, that he knew the mind of Christ because it had been revealed to him and to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. All of these things we've talked about and discussed in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, he talks about the division being uh, a part of the worldly uh, mindset that they have, verses 1 through 4 in particular there in chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. He makes it clear that, that he and Apollos were merely the servants of God. And in chapter 4, the beginning part of it, chapter 4 beginning at verse 1 and going through about verse 5, he, he talks again about Paul and uh, himself and Apollos being the servants and the stewards of the mysteries of of God, and so you know, he, he he said, "This is the way that you should consider us that that we are the under rowers. We're the we're the servants. We're we're the ones who are down in the belly of the ship who are pulling the oars, and, and we are the ones who are charged with taking care of and making sure that uh, that God's word, His mysteries, as we talked about last time, that they are faithfully cared for." But all of this is in the context of the division. The division that has taken place within the church at Corinth. And Paul continues to dig into that. And one of the things that, that he wants to point out uh, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 4 is what we'll discuss tonight. Look, if you will, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 at verse number 6. Paul writes these words. He said, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written, that none of you may be puffed up 
in favor of one against another. Now let's start out with this verse and let's analyze it just a little bit tonight. Paul says that he had applied all of these things to Apollos and himself. If you go back all the way to chapter 1, you talk about how that some were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. He's carried that all the way through up to this point. He's continued to talk about himself and Apollos. And he's talked about the problems. He's talked about the things that, that are related to it. And now he says, I have applied all of these things to me and to Apollos. The word translated applied means to change the form of or to transform. Now it's used in other places in the New Testament. For example, it's used in Philippians chapter 3 at verse 21. Paul writes there and says about Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Paul talks about the change that would take place within the Christian and the, the, uh, the things that are related to the resurrection as well. Uh, again, it's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. And it's there that we might get a better sense of what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 6. Listen to what he says and how it's translated in the English Standard Version there. Paul says, For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So that it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Three times in that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, Paul uses, and it's translated in the English Standard Version, disguises. Now we understand what a disguise is. If you ever watch the, the television show or reruns or, or, or maybe even the movies uh, about Mission Impossible, you'll see that those people were, were masters of disguise. They, they could transform themselves to look just about like anybody. Okay? Paul says, what I've been telling you is not just about me and Apollos. The whole thing has to do with you and what you're doing here. One writer said, in commenting on what is uh, said here by the Apostle Paul, it's as though Paul had said, I have used myself and Apollos above as an illustration. Uh, all of the things that he said in regard to them... He said, I've used them as an illustration. Brother Wayne Jackson, in his comments on this passage, says, The names of Paul, Apollos, and Cephas had been symbolically employed to temporarily shield the faction leaders. How very gracious and compassionate of the compassionate Paul. You know, as I thought about what is said here and how to, how to best get the point across, 
I thought about the Old Testament. And I thought about King David. And I thought about Nathan the prophet. And you remember after King David had committed sin with Bathsheba, God sent Nathan the prophet to King David, didn't he? And he didn't come to King David and say, All right, King David, you've sinned. What did he do first? He said, King David, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about a man who had a little ewe lamb. And he had some company, and, or, 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 or there was a rich man who had an abundance, but, but he had some, the rich man had some company, and rather than taking one of his flock, he, he went over there and slaughtered the, the little ewe lamb. Well, you know what that did? You remember the story, don't you? King David, I mean, he was just incensed. He, it made him mad. He said, who is that who has done such a, and I'm paraphrasing, who has done such a horrible thing? And Nathan said, King David, you're the man. You've taken Uriah's wife. Paul says here in this passage, let me tell you about Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And, 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 you know, you weren't baptized into Paul. You weren't baptized into Apollos. You weren't baptized into Cephas. You were baptized into Christ. You see, it seems that what is likely happening in Corinth is that they were not so much divided up into I'm following Paul or I'm following Apollos or I'm following Cephas, Peter, as they were divided up into groups within the congregation. You got this person sitting over here who's taken on a leadership position and he has his little group. And maybe you got another group back here and you've got someone who's exalted himself and he's got his little followers. Paul says, I've applied what I've been talking about to me and to Cephas, to Apollos, particularly to him and to Apollos here in this passage. He said, I've applied it to that. But the point is, there's a bigger problem. There's something else here. Paul says, I've applied it. Notice what else he says here. I've applied it for a purpose. I want you to get an understanding, Paul says, that you're not to go beyond what is written. Now you may have, if you're reading from the, English, from the King James Version, you may have just a little bit different translation about exalting men. Okay, the, that's the point. The, the, the wording is difficult here, but the point is, either way you translate it, they were not to go beyond. Not to go beyond something. Not to go beyond what God had said. Okay? As we think about it, Remember what's said in the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Everything that we do as Christians, everything that we do as Christ's church, we're to have His authority, aren't we? Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We need to remember that. Young people need to remember that. All of us who are part of the body of Christ need to remember that that whatever it is that we need to do in order to be saved, we need God's authority for it. If, if I'm to hear, to believe, repent, confess, to be baptized, I need authority for that. If I'm just to believe 
and nothing else. I need authority for that. Whatever we do in word or deed, whatever we practice or whatever we preach, we're to do it by the authority in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what? It's not just the Bible that says, okay, you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you don't do this, and you don't do that, and you don't do the other. Sometimes the Bible authorizes when it's simply silent on a matter. For example, if you go back in the, book of, in the Old Testament, book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, at verse number 7, there's a very interesting passage back there. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 7, the Bible says, In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now let me, let me catch us up on what's happening here in 2 Samuel. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, David, the king, looks at himself and he says, Hey, I'm living in a, a nice house. And he calls it a house of cedar. Okay? But, but understand, I, I'm living in a nice house. We understand things like that when we use it from that standpoint. I'm living in a nice house. But God, he's living in a tent. God's living in a tent. Now you remember that God had instructed Moses to have the people build, it's called a tabernacle, but all a tabernacle is is a tent. He said, build this tent, construct this tent, and you can carry it with you. And, and, and it's going to have different compartments, it's going to have different places, and, and one of the places is going to be the, the most holy place. And it's there that the Ark of the Covenant's going to rest, and one time a year I'll come down and I'll meet with, uh, with you there. God said, do that. David said, you know, I'm living in a good house, and God's living in a tent. And so Nathan, the prophet again, we've already talked about him a little bit tonight, David tells him his plan, and Nathan says, hey, go for it. Build him a house. Well, that's before Nathan consults God. God says, uh, go back and tell David something for me, Nathan. Uh, go back and tell him, you know, when they were traveling around the judges, what we just read in chapter 7 at verse 7, he says, was there ever a time when I said, build me a house made out of cedar? Well, the answer to that is No. And you know what? God didn't tell David to do that either. He didn't tell him to build him a house. You say, well, well, wasn't that a good thing? That David wanted to build God a house? Well, got a good heart. Uh, his, his heart, he, he was a man after God's own heart. But there was a problem. You remember David was a man of blood. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said, uh, your son can do it, but I never told you to do it. Now, what would have happened if God, if the judges, if those people back in Moses' day even, 
What if they had decided, oh, God needs a better house than the one he told us to build? Would they have been right? What about David? Well, no. And God specifically said, no. But remember the question, let's go back to it in verse number 7. What had God said about it? Chapter 7, verse 7, In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Notice, God had not spoken a word. He didn't say, Build me a house. And he didn't say, Don't build me a house. He hadn't spoken a word. But what he had done was tell them what kind of accommodations he wanted. Build the tabernacle. What these men were doing in Corinth was much like that, except they had already done it. Who authorized these faction leaders, these people who were dividing up the church at Corinth, who okayed these faction leaders to do what they were doing? And as a result, dividing up the church. And the answer to that is absolutely no one. Had God said at that point, don't do it? Don't know of any place. And he hadn't told them to do it, but he had told them what he wanted. Now, does God have a way of, uh, uh, of leading, having leaders in his church? Absolutely. Even when the, the churches were being established, as they uh, begun, began to meet and to worship and to function, Paul would make his rounds, and in the months later, he would come back and do what? Many times on his way back, going back, he stopped at every church and appointed elders in every church. You see, these men had taken it upon themselves to have their little group and their little group. You know, what we've heard about those kinds of things, and we've heard preaching against that, but Paul said, hey, you folks are not doing it right. You're going beyond what you've been told to do. You, you're going by, and I'm, and I'm telling you these things, Paul says, so that you don't do that. Folks, we've got to learn not to go beyond. That's what he said about these things. But then there's a third thing. That's three, that's four, that's three, I got that. There's a third thing. He said, I don't want you to do it because I don't want you to become puffed up. Now, that's a fun little word when you look at it and look up the definition of it. That word just means to, to inflate. Now, they didn't have balloons, I'm sure, you know, like we have them today, made like we have them, but that's what you do. You inflate a balloon. Well, Paul says, I don't want you to become inflated. Now, it goes on, not, not, not just to be literally inflated, it, it means to, to make proud. I don't want you to become 
proud. There's another word that we use for it, and it's actually used in the text. It's not translated that way here in verse 6, but it is if you drop on down to verse 18. Or if you go to chapter 5 at verse number 2. Or if you go to chapter 13 at verse number 4, you'll see that word arrogant. And in chapter 13, verse number 4, it's used in that passage, love is not arrogant. Okay? And so he says, I don't want you, by what you're doing, to exalt yourself, to become inflated, and become arrogant. You see, it was their own invention to exalt themselves and to divide God's people. That was, that was their doing. They had gone beyond what God had authorized them to do. They were admonished for going beyond what God had authorized them to do. You know, that's really why we as God's people today have to be careful not to devise our own ways of arranging God's church. That's why we have to be careful today about setting up His worship any way that we want. You see, God views that kind of stuff as evil arrogance. Who appointed you to be the balloon man, to be puffed up? Paul said, you know, I've been using myself and Apollos' illustrations, understanding you shouldn't be dividing over us, but you shouldn't be dividing over Joe and Sam and Bill and Bob or whoever here in the church either. You can't be doing that. Don't go beyond what's written. I didn't tell you to do it. Didn't authorize it for you. And when you do, when you try that stuff, I look at you as being... Well, let me stop right here for a second. How many of us have ever said something about, well, that person is awfully arrogant? I mean, how many times do we speak well of arrogance? I mean, have you ever, when, when you see an arrogant person, well, you just run up and hug their neck and, you know, you just say, man, I'm so glad you're the way you are. Right? Oh, no. We're speaking bad when we say they're arrogant. Can you imagine God calling you arrogant? Wow. That's strong stuff, isn't it? I don't think God likes it any more than what we like it, and He probably dislikes it more even than what we do. He says you become puffed up. Now what happens in the following verses, the next few verses, is that Paul continues to describe and denounce this carnal mindset that they've got, this worldly mindset, this, this worldly pride, this arrogance. 
that they've got. And it's interesting what he says in the next few verses. So let's look at them. Verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You know what Paul does? Paul says, hey, you need to do some soul searching. You need to really seriously think about some of the things that, that are going on. What was it, what, what was there about any of them that made them different or more important than the others? Let me answer that for you. It's the answer that Paul expects you to give. Absolutely nothing. You're all on the same footing. As a matter of fact, Paul has already talked about, hey, when you're looking at me and you're looking at Apollos, regardless as the people, remember what we said at the beginning of this lesson, who are down in the belly of the boat rowing where nobody wanted to be. Don't be lifting yourself up. So, who sees anything different in you? In other words, what, what made you different? What made you more important than others? Nothing. Here's another question. What do you have which you didn't receive from some other source? You know, I can't, can't think about that without thinking about James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift you make up on your own. Did y'all read it that way? Comes down from the Father of lights. Every good gift that you get, where did it come from? Oh, oh yeah, except for, there's no except fors. Every good gift. Who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that hasn't been given to you? You want me to answer that one for you too? Absolutely nothing. You see, everything had come from God. God had provided life and still continues to provide our life. God had provided for them various spiritual gifts. God continues to provide for us talents that we can use. You see, God gives us our health and our opportunities and our food and our clothing and our means of making a living and our strength. There is nothing that doesn't come from God. And so in view of the fact that we do receive what we have, why in the world, as far as what, Paul is saying here, why in the world would you be puffed up? Would you be arrogant as though you had made it all or gotten it all or done it all by your own hand? Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? Well, if you received it, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you setting yourself on a pedestal and saying, come follow me? Why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? No one could 
just arrogantly boast about his or her special spiritual gift from God or any other thing, could they? Well, not only do we have verse 7, verse 8, Paul goes on. He says, already you have what you want, already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. See, Paul even pours it on a little heavier here. It wasn't just a possibility that this could happen. These these men, these people in the church there could become puffed up and all of the things that, you know, go along with the arrogance that are there. It wasn't just a possibility that it could happen. It was already happening within the church at Corinth. And in a bad way. They had already gone beyond what God had written. They had arrogantly crowned themselves as reigning rich kings. And thus, we could simply come up with a title. They were puffed up kings. You've already become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And you know what it got them? If you just keep reading in chapter 5, <laughs> it got them atrocious sin going on in the church. Chapter 6, it got them suing one another. Chapter 7, it, it, there are problems with marriage and questions about that. Just go on to chapter 11. Chapter 11, they were having problems with the Lord's Supper. They were even dividing themselves up in regard to that. Chapters 12, 13, and 14, they're arguing about who's got the best spiritual gift. Chapter 15, doctrinal impurity, error, regarding even the resurrection had invaded the Lord's church in Corinth. That was the result of these people arrogantly taking on what they were doing. You know, it's really a whole lot easier just to do as you please, isn't it? And that's what they were doing, and that's what they had gotten. Trouble. Trouble among God's people. Isn't it interesting, though, that Paul makes sort of a statement there? I... And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul talking about himself and Apollos and the other, other apostles. He's going to address that in just a second. I, I wish it was that easy. You know, we could join in with you if it was like that. Everything would be fine and dandy. But we know it's not. It's not. Well... Let's keep going. Look at verses 9 and 10. For I think that God has exhibited us. The us relates to the apostles. He's exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. 
You're held in honor. We're in disrepute. Paul, what are you doing? What are you saying? Well, in contrast to those who had arrogantly exalted themselves, we have Christ's apostles. We have the real Paul. We have the real Apollos. We have the real Peter. But notice what he says here. He said, I think that God has exhibited us. What does he mean by that? He's, he's exhibited us. The word means to show off, to display, put on display, to demonstrate them. He's exhibited us. And notice he uses the phrase in this passage, and last, he's exhibited us apostles as last of all. How many of you have ever been to a concert? Anybody? You don't have to raise your hand. Been to a boxing match or a wrestling match? What, 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 if you go to a concert or a boxing match or a wrestling match, you know they always start with the best band, don't they? Don't they? They always start with the best one. Who, who, who you came for. Oh, no, you got the opening acts, don't you? If you go to a boxing match, you got the undercards. And then what happens? You get to the main event, don't you? You get to the one that you really came to see. Uh, they're the last ones to come on stage, aren't they? They save them for last. You paid to see them, but you're going to sit through the others, okay? Make any difference. If you want to hear the... Ones that you came to hear, then you've got to hear everybody else. Okay? And last, he's exhibited us as last of all. Seems as though the apostles had become the main event. But the main event of what? I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Paul, what are you talking about? Notice he goes on and says they've become a spectacle. A spectacle. Spectacle from the word theatron, from which we get our word theater. They had become the main show But a, a show like the gladiators. They were like the ones who were last in the arena. The gladiators fighting to the death. I understand it was sort of like that. Sort of like we think about the boxing matches. You had all of the other activities before you got to the main event when you had the gladiators. But everybody came to see all the bloodshed. Everybody wanted to see who's getting killed today or eaten by a lion or whatever. Paul says, we become the show, the spectacle. I don't want you to notice to who the show is. Who is who's observing? Who's the audience? He says, the world. To angels. 
You realize that angels do observe what happens here on this earth. Numerous times in the New Testament, God mentions that. And even the salvation that we have, He specifically speaks about how that they, they look at that salvation with longing eyes, wanting to understand more about it. Because they, they're not privy to it. They, they don't have the same kind of relationship that we have. And it's as though from, from their heavenly portals, they're watching these men going through everything that they're going through. Everywhere the apostles went, what happened to them? They faced persecution and rejection and danger on every hand. And everybody's seeing that. And it looks like we are the most foolish people in the world. I mean, who wants to go through what the apostles were going through? Anybody? Oh no, not y'all. We're fools for Christ. Y'all got it all figured out over here at Corinth. I mean, you done set yourself up on a pedestal. You got your little groups over here. You've divided up the church. Don't really make any difference. You've got all these problems to you. You're contributing to all of that. You're wise. We're weak. You're strong. You've already conquered like a conquering king. You're held in honor because everybody... Is following you, not Christ. And yet, everywhere we go, holding up the Christ, we're held in disrepute. Folks don't think as much of us. Boy, that's some pretty tough chastisement, isn't it? By the Apostle Paul. He goes on in verses 11 through 13. He's not finished yet. To the present hour. Paul says, as I write this letter to you, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted. You know that word buffeted means to be beaten black and blue. And homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. You remember Paul talks about how that he worked with Aquila and Priscilla because they were tent makers, making his own way. Didn't want the church to be charged. He said, I have a right to do that, but I don't want the church to be charged with my upkeep. When reviled, we, we bless. Who else did that? Their Lord did. When persecuted, we endure. I mean, how many times can you be beaten? How many times can you be stoned? How many times can you be shipwrecked and get up and go back the next day? But we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are. 
the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Remember the contrast? You're puffed up kings over here. I just used me and Apollos as, as the illustration. But in reality, you have got it all figured out. You've gone beyond what God has said. You've got your little cliques over here. You've got your little followers. We've got the division within the church. It's destroying the church. You're nothing like a servant. You're nothing like what God wants. And Paul says two things about himself and Apollos and the apostles. We're like the scum of the world. You know what the scum of the world is? The word that's used here, the scum of the world. Have you ever washed something? Say you mop the floor, okay? You mop the floor, and really it doesn't make any difference. You may have just mopped it. But, but think about a dirty floor. You mop the dirty floor. You know, you got your mop water over here. <clears throat> you put that in the refrigerator, don't you? That, that's what you keep for the, the drinking water, right? I'm not trying to... No, it's got all of the dirt, all of the grit, all of the grime. All the stuff that, that you were trying to get off the floor, right? If you've ever taken a water hose and, and, and washed something that's really dirty, it's all that junk that washes away. That's the scum. That's what the word is. That's the scum. We're like the stuff to be washed away. And he says, not only are we like that, we're the refuse of all things. Have you ever wiped down something? say with a sponge or a cloth, something that's dirty. When you, when you do that and, and it comes off on the cloth or on the, on the sponge, that's the word that's translated refuse. Not the old dirty, nasty water. It's that nasty stuff that you see, that you look at, that's, that, that, that's on, the, on the cloth. You've exalted yourself. You put yourself up even above God. God looks as you at arrogant. And in contrast to that, God has put us, His chosen servants, the ones to carry His message, in contrast to what you are in Corinth, this is reality. This is how we... Are treated. This is how God's people at that time were being treated. You know, Paul wasn't complaining. The other apostles didn't complain. You remember what happened back in Acts chapter 5, don't you? They had been arrested. Peter and John had been arrested. and They'd gone through a lot of things. And in verses 41 and 42, then they left the presence of the council... Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What about 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7 and going through verse 12? 
Paul there talks about himself. Here's what he says in that passage. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you without the utmost, or with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Paul says, I, t- I-, I took it all. But remember... In that passage, he's still writing to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, basically what Paul does is defend his apostleship. And notice how the English Standard Version translates perhaps even some of these same people. What What he calls it, some of these same people who had become puffed up kings. He calls them super apostles. Uh... He wasn't just describing them. He was making fun of them. Not really fun, but he was criticizing. Not not just because he didn't like them. They were wrong. Paul didn't complain. He went on. In spite of his thorn in the flesh, in spite of all that he did, he was glad to do it. Let's bring it to a close tonight. Folks, we don't want to be puffed up kings, do we? Two things, though. You know, it's much easier to be like the Corinthians than to be like the apostles. Isn't it? A whole lot easier to be like them. I mean, I'd rather be in a place of comfort. I'd rather be, you know, not having to go through what Paul went through. I'd rather have it all figured out. I would rather, you know, people always look up to me and honor me. And to... It's a whole lot easier to be like the Corinthians than to be like the apostles. But it's much better to be like the apostles than to be like the Corinthians. Isn't it? Isn't it? The Corinthians were wrong. They were doing harm and damage. Paul was doing work, commissioned by God, Directed by God. 
wasn't pleasant. But he was willing to do it day after day. Why? You see, the difference was, Paul knew that by allowing Christ to be the king, rather than elevating himself to be a puffed up king, that that king, who was the real king, who would be the judge, would be the one who would reward his servant. And no wonder he would write to Timothy those famous words that we hear so many times. Fought a good fight. Kept the faith. Finished the course. Henceforth there is laid up for me crown of righteousness. That's when he'd be the winner. That's when it really counted. Don't be a puffed up king. See, that's the point that Paul is trying to make. It leads to division. It leads to trouble. It leads to one losing his, his or her soul. As we close